Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Texas Law Talk Radio, and I'm your host, Nick Augustine, at Lone Star Content Marketing, providing content marketing for Texas attorneys and law firms. Today, I'm here with the 367th District Court Judge in Denton County, the Honorable Brent Hill. Today, our topic is judging the law, an inside look at the transition from lawyer to judge. Judge Brent Hill, how are you doing this afternoon? Doing great, sir. Thank you very much for asking. All right. Well, I'm glad to have you. And it's something that people don't really think about unless you're a lawyer who wants to become a judge. And I've heard from some people in the past that it can be a big endeavor to switch gears, really shutting down your law practice, going on the bench. I remember many years ago, some people said that once you become a judge, it's kind of lonely because all your friends are afraid of you now. (laughs) I don't know if my friends are afraid of me, but they're definitely, I don't get to see them as much. Exactly. That's the one thing that I was told that being a judge would be lonely and you wouldn't see see people as much. Uh, There definitely is a certain amount of isolation. I think legally, uh, you you're prohibited from having some of the contacts before and just physically you're in one place. Uh, Prior to taking the bench, I ran my own practice for 20 years after I left the district attorney's office. I was in five to 10 different courts each day, seeing different attorneys, different friends each and every day. Uh, And we're talking, you know, that I felt like I was all over the place. This has been the first job I've had as a lawyer where I'm actually have to stay in a desk or in one courtroom for an entire amount of time. And usually I only get to see the lawyers that are actually practicing before me. So it is definitely a little bit isolating. Um, and I think that just obviously becoming a judge is a totally different situation from running a private practice. Uh, I think, you know, there's obviously the financials. You're running your own business. You're running your own show. You're making ever, making the money, but you're also making all your own decisions. You live and die by your own actions. That's what I loved about running a business. Uh, working for the, the community, well, I'm at, their, I'm at their beck and call. I, I mean, I'm here at 745 every morning, leaving at, at 5 o'clock. Uh, I work through lunches. When the law enforcement bring me cases to like for search warrants, for grand jury subpoenas, uh, when they need me, they need me. I'm, you know, that's not taken in consideration. Those three o'clock in the morning phone calls that you get needing a search warrant or arrest warrant sign for a emergency situation. But it's definitely a change of pace. So what cases are the ones that you handle in this court? Uh, the 367 District Court, uh, by its very nature, it's a general jurisdiction court, mm-hmm. meaning I have the legal authority to hear civil cases uh, over a certain amount, car wreck cases. I can hear um, family law cases, divorces, suit affecting parent-child relationships, modifications, and felony criminal cases. Right now, for my first six months, uh, I've only heard family law cases and I have a small CPS docket. I run a, a, the CPS uh, Family Drug Court in Denton County. 
I'm thankful I do not hear hot car wreck cases. I think I might have to put stick myself in in you know in the eye with a pencil right. if I had to hear those. Yeah. Uh, there's a chance I may be hearing felonies in the future, but right now it's family and CPS. So the drug court, um, I'm familiar with that because I was involved in the foundation in Dallas County for their drug court and helping mm-hmm. people get their kids back from CPS. That's a big deal. That's really important to the community. Thank you. And I, uh, it's, it's with every heartache, you have a blessing. It's one of those moments where you literally, we take only high risk, uh, high addiction parents who have lost their kids uh, removed. And usually they either succeed in your court or they lose everything. Often, sometimes they lose their lives, taking their lives, overdoses. So it is amazingly rewarding to see someone the lights come on, you see them taking steps and getting their kids back. It, it can be a very heart wrenching, but it can also be one of it's can be some of the best cases I deal with. Yeah. At the end of the day, you want to be feeling like you're doing something that ultimately matters to society and the world and making things a better place and not just, I mean, as a judge, you know, I know a lot of times when people are running, sometimes they say the most important thing is keeping the record and, you know, all the the ministerial parts of things, you know, and a lot of times judges in my experience want clients to settle their own things. Um, you know, so a lot of time it feels like you're kind of the ringleader of a big circus, you know, but there's other times that you get to really have a substantial impact on someone's life. So that's awesome. I appreciate it. And that's, yeah, you, you definitely, it's, I think you definitely don't become a judge for the money. <laughs> you definitely, uh, I mean, I think there's significant pay cuts you definitely are jumping in the fray with a lot of cases. And um, at the end of the day, I always, I mean, this is what I told my clients when I was representing individuals and family cases and criminal cases. I want you to leave my, I'll leave my office better than when you come in. And I think the same thing, regardless if, if it's a drug court case or if it's a custody case, my theory is you always lead from the front, right. whether you are, I know I can I can hear a case and I can hear balls and strikes and I can rule that way, but there are definitely when I'm dealing with children, whether it's a drug court case or whether it's a custody case, there's certain things that that I expect. I don't want to scream and yell unnecessarily at someone. I don't want them to punish, but I do want them to know right from wrong, and I do I do want them to understand that in this court and in life. You're rewarded for good behavior. You're punished for bad. Every no one is without sin, and the grace of God. We don't deserve it, but we are blessed to have it. And I and I and I hope that I share that same grace with the individuals before my court. I do not tolerate parents trash talking the others. I don't tolerate parents isolating the children from the other. But I also want them to know that we make mistakes, but if we make we make amends, if we're doing better, that's going to be rewarded. That's going to be recommended, and um, it's important that they understand why they woke up. Mothers and fathers, they made a choice before their child was born. They don't get to make some of the choices that they want to make when the child is ap- after the child is born, and that's the one thing that that I hope that I reinforce. Uh, I was told by a good friend of mine who also is a judge that the best thing that could have ever happened to me as a, as a judge was one being a parent myself and mm-hmm. two having gone through my own ugly divorce. And you, you definitely, it's hard to sit there and 
sit in judgment of other people without first having gone through the very struggle of being a full-time parent, going through the struggle of having that separation in a, in a relationship that was once your, you know, your number one. It, it, I think that it's, it's definitely helped me and relate and make hopefully better decisions that affect these people's lives. You know, one of the things about family law is there's a saying that you're seeing good people at their worst times and they're going through their worst experiences and the things that come out, they never thought that they'd be fighting like cats and dogs, but it's like there's something that happens that takes over a person. There's just so much that we can take and the legal process can be brutal on these people. Do you think that there's people you see that sometimes you wonder, I wonder if this person can change and is actually good or are they just rotten? It's hard to tell sometimes, like if people are just stuck up in the process and you hope that afterwards that they're good. It's so hard to be able to tell how someone is as a parent in a, you know, micro, micro universe of facts and circumstances and allegations. You don't really, you know, it's like the worst things are being said about people and that's the focus. It's never, it's never, our pleadings don't have all the list of the great things people did. We don't see that. Definitely, definitely. And I think that, I mean... I guess to, to kind of unpack that one, the the system definitely doesn't lend itself to uh, cooperation. I think when you go into an adversarial system, there there are so many things that are amazing about our system. When you look at other systems of, of I don't know if you want to call it justice, but court systems in other countries, we're very blessed to have what we have. But on the other hand, when you're dealing with the diff, the delicate issues. Uh, between a, a, a husband and a wife, a, a mom and a dad and a child, it is difficult sometimes to kind of separate the truth from somewhat, sometimes it's orchestrated fiction uh, to get your way. And it, I think that that is unfortunate. I think it's important when you, when parents are looking at what they do with respect to their custody cases, is first is, you need to reprioritize what you're doing, why you're doing it. If you don't know why you're doing something, that's a problem. And secondly, you want to look at if you're hiring counsel, and I'm definitely, if you're going into a, a shooting match, don't go unarmed. But I think it's important to look at who you believe who can adequately represent. I see that for, for every one lawyer that you make, you, you want to shake your fist at, I see five that I'm proud to call a brother and sister in the law because they understand that unnecessary litigation can actually be harmful for these relationships. And these are the very attorneys that also understand that for every hour that we are in a courtroom fighting over children, we're effectively guaranteeing two hours of future therapy that that child's going to have to attend to. Ding, ding, ding. Exactly. And it's so um, for, you know, we get lawyers that we, you know, that, that, that are the butt of many jokes and they're probably the source of many of them. But we also have attorneys that understand that if we're not serving and helping our client navigate through an already difficult situation and, and if we're not concerned about what their relationships look like in five, 10 or 15 years down the way, and what we're doing and how it affects a child, those people understand that those consequences exist and they're assisting their clients to best approach 
this case with keeping the well-being of the child in the mind first and foremost as a priority number one as versus whether we can win today's hearing or not i those are the those are the counsel that i'm proud to know that i hope that i was and um, definitely like to see him in my courtroom now that's not always the case and sometimes people are going to fight regardless of the best intentions and best advice of counsel mm -hmm. But, you know, for anyone looking to, for anyone, unfortunately, finding themselves in that legal dilemma, obviously, you know, your gut response, that gut reaction isn't always your best response. I find it, uh, what's a valuable situation to be able to look back at yourself and say, I wonder what kind of lawyer I was in this instance or that instance. It's a unique perspective most people don't get let's move on to some of our questions for today specifically sure. like what motivated you to run for district court judge here in denton county i one of those crazy questions i should have asked myself before you know it really at the end of the day it, i think it was about service i you know i uh i i i, I was in the army i prosecuted um, I grew up, grow up poor and I didn't know lawyers. My grandfather said, you'd be a great lawyer. I thought he was trying to insult me. I didn't realize that at that particular point in my life that lawyering actually was part and parcel with serving, but I knew service and I, regardless of where I was at in my career, I always felt like I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to help someone better their position, whether it was overcoming drugs, whether it was overcoming relationship issues, dealing with, you know, victims of violence. I always wanted to, to, to try to make sure you came into my office and you left better at that point. And I, after 22 years of doing this as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney, as a you know, representing, you know, families and, you know, in every family law case known to man, I kind of, it was kind of just like a, a next step. I had seen judges that, that I respected that I thought, wow, they're, they're doing it right. And then I also saw the judges who would use the bench as a, they would create unnecessary drama. And I, I always thought I'm never going to be judged, but if, lo and behold, if I ever did, I would, this is the person I'd want to emulate. This is the person I'd want to copy. And I think I came in the last two or three years, uh, I had a conversation with my daughter and she was at that point, end of her high school career. And she had dreams. She said that she wanted to move out of state. She wanted to go to one of the best ag colleges ever. And she had these great ideas. And so I told her, I said, you know, don't dabble. Don't put your toe in the water. Dive in. Mm -hmm. If you have a dream, fight for it. And then she flipped the cards on me. <laughs> and she says, well, what do you dream about, Dad? What do you want to? And we had some big changes in to our say. life. Yes. And yeah. I was like the, the talking about the, the, the out of the mouth of babes. Right. And at that moment, we were, you know, uh, we had a, we had changes in our family and, and my daughter and I were really kind of regrouping and 
And she said, what do you want? And I said, well, you know, I've always thought about being a judge, but didn't really put much thought on it. And she goes, well, dad, quit fooling around and dive in. And so that was really kind of at, a, at the same moment that she was chasing her, her dream for college was the same time that I realized, heck with it. I'm not dead yet. I'm not, I'm, you know, my life has changed. Doesn't mean it had to be for the worse. And so it was kind of like a, a reorientation of my priorities. I thought, well, heck with it. I know what I like. I know what I like to do. I love fighting in a courtroom. Hopefully I'm fighting for good, but I loved, I loved that part. And so it was kind of a shuck. So I'm going to put up or shut up. So yeah, that's, she, she called me out and I'm glad she did it. Good thing you won. I appreciate it. Cause you know what? Yeah, she'd have been like, what are you put me through? Yeah, exactly. Good that job, dad. Lot, but. You know? So what were some of the challenges of closing down a law practice before taking your seat on the bench? You touched on that a little before. Um, the, the going from 120 miles an hour to zero miles an hour, uh, over, over a matter of days, hours, months, going from a, uh, and here's what happened. I knew that I was going to fight for the bench. I knew I was starting in the fall of 21 with, with respect to the primary being in March of 22. Mm-hmm. I knew that realistically, whoever was going to take the bench, whoever was going to win the election would know March to April March to May of 22. And so running that campaign, I've never been good at it's, it's either zero or a hundred miles an hour and nothing in the middle. I knew that I would not be able to live with myself if I just put my name on the, the ballot and, and then just left it at that. I knew that I would go a hundred miles an hour. And at that particular point, I was running my own law firm I, you know, had a full caseload. I was going to numerous trials each month and I was going to have to, and granted, I'm paying for all my bills. I'm paying for my daughter's college. I'm paying for, paying for everything. Yeah. Um, and I was the only source of income and I was the full breadwinner for my daughter and full-time dad, full-time business owner. So running the campaign during that particular time, you don't get a lot of sleep. <laughs> I can imagine. And, and then you always have this, well, I have to keep the business running because obviously I have to pay the bills. But what happens in March to May if I lose? It, I still have to run a business. It really begs the question, too, with ongoing cases. Like if you're going to refer those out to other lawyers who are friends of yours, that really now it's like, Handing off, giving a referral is one thing. Handing off a case to someone, that's a whole different ballgame. That's exactly right. That's, so, that's tough. Like, who do you really trust? It kind of hits you. And I had, I mean, and so whenever I was, people were hiring me through the fall of 21, the the spring of 22, I, I had full disclosure that I am doing this. They're like, oh, yeah, we see you running around like a chicken with your head cut off. <laughs> yeah. And I said, okay, so you know that in March that if I win, I have to shed every case by January 1st of 23. And they said, okay. And some people understood that and they decided they wanted to go elsewhere. I said, great, no problem. Not hurting my feelings. But I had so many people said, well, we know you, we know of you. And they insisted on hiring me regardless. 
And so when March 1st or March 2nd came down, um, that was really the, oh, hold on here. Now I understand that I have to have every case closed uh, by effectively December of 22. Uh, I had well over 100 plus criminal cases. I probably had 70 family law cases. Mm. I had jury trials set all through the summer of 22. I had, you know, easily I probably had two to three big contested hearings each week um, all the way through the summer. And so, and of course you can't take any more cases, but then you have to work the cases you have. And so I had maximum amount of work, minimum amount of moving money. Yeah. And so for the for the year of 22, that was a beautiful moment where I had lots of work. I still had to pay my employees. I still had to pay for my business. Sure. But I also had to shut down my practice. So I'll just say this. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> it <was. laughs> it's, yeah. You know, you, you wonder sometimes, like, um, like what would people like, would they do it if you could do it all over again? I mean, I don't know who says that they wouldn't, but you know, I'm sure it's, you know, it's, that's just, it's a lot, but it's a, what a, it's a good thing to go through, I suppose. So, um, so let's talk about some ethical considerations about the whole, uh, concept of campaigning and running for judge. There are a lot of things that judicial campaigns, you can't do the same things that other people like state reps can do when they're running for things. It's a whole different ballgame with judicial ethics, and a lot of people don't understand that. You know, you look at the State of the Union address, and they see, oh, wow, the whole Supreme Court's sitting down. You know, well, they're not allowed. It's a partisan thing. They can't stand up a clap. They need to sit there and, like, do their, you know, people don't understand. So, lighten us a little bit. Excellent point. That was the one thing when you go to baby judge school. Um, baby I'm judge school, it's, uh, they call it new judge school, but... Um, we all, it's nicknamed baby judge school. When you have, they have a, a baby prosecutor school when you become a prosecutor. Yeah. And the state bar actually has, um, it's actually not the state bar. It's the center of the judiciary um, actually puts it on. And it's a class where all uh, all of your state judges will go before, either before or within the first year of starting uh, taking the bench. And that was the first thing they wanted everyone to know is, is you have constitutional rights. You have the right to freedom of speech, just like every, everyone else is blessed with. Except now that you're a judge, now that you wear the bathrobe every day, uh, the judicial canons and there's other rules out there that apply directly to judges that severely limit what we can say, what we can do. For example, um, you're on Facebook and, you know, someone says, Hey, you know, you know, they, they, they go to a restaurant, they have a steak. If they like that experience, they can go on and like it. Talk about how great this steak was, what the service was like, or just the opposite. Well, judges apparently get in trouble when we, if we like something, if, whether it's a political candidate, whether it's uh, a person talking about a political view and something that I wouldn't, you know, if they want to talk about fishing and hunting or this so-and-so went on this dove hunt or this, they went striper fishing and they like this outfitter. 
it would have been great. Hell, I would have, I would have said great. I love that. Right. Well, now as a judge, I can't like anything. <laughs> uh, now I can, I can have my personal views. I can, I can go fishing and hunting with an outfitter. But if I on at a public forum was to to endorse or criticize uh, something, regardless of whether everyone knows I'm a judge or not, it can be reasonably inferred that. I am taking a position and that this particular court is endorsing something, which is a big no, no. Um, glad I found that out. Uh, with respect to political views, statements on beliefs. Now, obviously I have serious beliefs on certain things. And, and I think it's pretty clear if you know me, how I feel about a lot of things, but I, as a judge, you know, espousing what those views are could potentially uh, have me um, recused from hearing cases that would would potentially deal with those issues. Right. So it's kind of a it's definitely a big limitation on what we can say in public. Do I think it's fair? No, but you know what? Sometimes. I don't know everything and smarter people than I put rules in place for a reason. Mm, amen. Protect us from ourselves and from all the rest of the world. And it's like, yes. you know, anything that can be taken out of context will be taken out of context in the court of public opinion, much separate from the court of actual Definitely. law. Definitely. <laughs> so that's, you know, we've all mm-hmm. seen that. And sometimes the court of opinion has more weight than the court of law. Unfortunately, you're right. It's, I, I, I've, I've had say several times what the truth is and what the appearance is sometimes the how it appears is just as important as what the truth is uh and so it's definitely something to take in consideration all right well my last question is just evaluating some personal personal growth involved in the journey from going from being a lawyer to becoming a judge and assuming entirely new set of responsibilities and perspective um where do you feel you are on your personal growth journey and, you know, as far as you've been in so far, so long? I, I was told judicial temperament's important. And of course it's, that's one of those things. It's like a no duh. Of course it's important. Um, but until you're sitting in the chair and you're actually have the, the situation right in front of you, mm-hmm. the dilemma is put in right in front of you. It's, it's, you definitely have a gut check every day. Uh, I just finished, uh, yesterday, um, I came back from, from a location. Actually, the conference is ending today, so I can say it out loud. Uh, in Houston, there was the National Drug Court, uh, conference that was put on by All Rise. And, um, this organization assists drug courts, veteran courts, family drug courts of all different types. And the one thing that they were that they were uh, preaching, and and I, and at first I wouldn't have realized how important it was, but they talked about encouragement. You punish bad behavior, you treat addiction. And at first I thought, well, that sounds, you know, that sounds like some hokey, you know, huggy, touchy feely thing. Because ordinarily, I, I, I deal with individuals who have drug issues that relapse, and it's real uh, easy. It's almost a knee jerk. Okay, you do this, you go to jail. 
And what they had talked about, and which makes perfect sense, is, is when you have individuals who are honest about their problems, they admit their relapse on, on a drug, or they admit that they're making a mistake, you have to look at that as a different situation versus someone who is trying to get over on you, if you will. The criminal type of, of mindset where they've done something bad and then they lie about it and then they're deceptive about it. And they talked about the differentiation and which makes perfect sense in what I do every day. I have, you know, individuals who make mistakes and they're remorseful about it and they realize, okay, I need help. I have to handle that a different way versus someone who was trying to lie, steal and cheat. And it used to be the knee jerk response. You do something bad, you get punished. Well, my problem is, is I have people in front of me that no one has come before me and is free of sin. Everyone who comes in front of me has made a mistake, whether it's in their relationship early on. Maybe they weren't attentive to their spouse. Maybe they got heated and they said bad things to the spouse, things that we would hopefully, you know, never have done in our lives. But who hasn't lost their cool? Who hasn't said things they shouldn't say? And so now the temperament has to come in. And it's easy to throw the gavel at everyone and yell at everyone. But at the end of the day, I have to ask myself, and, and the, the other judges have said it as well, are you helping a situation or are you hurting it? A good friend of mine said, if what I'm about to say feels good, maybe I shouldn't say it because just feeling good and yelling at someone may not actually be what that particular person in the court needs. And so that, that's been, I guess, from the personal growth standpoint, that has been the lesson that has been smacking me on the forehead. Every day I'm asking myself, did I do it right? And if I did it well, could I have done it better? Did I blow up at them? Did I yell at them? And if I did raise my voice, did I do it in such a way that helps the situation or was it just a feel good moment? Because I don't want to feel good. I want to make sure that I help this family. That's a long answer for, yeah. <laughs> for a one a good answer. question. Like, well, I just, well, you, you ever watch the show Court Cam on A&E Network? Have you ever seen that? I have not. Okay. I don't like to see court shows. <laughs> But the court cam, it, usually they'll have like um, you know people who are um, coming before the judge for a plea hearing or something. It's mm -hmm. usually a criminal thing, and they'll pop off on the judge or say something crazy. But there's times that judges have lost it on some of the people too, and come under scrutiny big time. Yes, you know, and you you know you you're, you don't just just because you're a judge. I mean, you have carte blanche to just say or do whatever you want. You know, but Amen. people don't realize that. Yeah. Any uh, final points in uh, the whole uh, process of the transition from lawyer to judge and any, I guess, recommendations or suggestions for uh, lawyers and your friends out there who may consider running because this county is continuing to grow. And those who want to be a judge, I mean, you know, the, the new courthouses keep getting built. Well, you know, we need to put judges in them. I think that the one thing that I would say to anyone who's wanting to be a judge is the same thing I would say to someone who's wanting to be a lawyer. Know why you're wanting to do it. If you're wanting to do it, make sure you're doing it for the right reason. And um, the, the reason I say that to uh, 
there are some individuals that that want to be lawyers who want to be judges and and like I've heard people say, well, I want to be a lawyer because I want to make money. Well, there are definitely places where you can make money as a lawyer, not as a judge, <laughs> but, and, but that's not a good reason to do anything. And if they want to, and I've heard other people say, well, I want to boss people around. Oh my goodness. That is the <laughs> worst reason. Right. I want to be in charge. Well, that is the worst reason to do anything. <laughs> but I also know that there's individuals who are out there, who actually want to serve, they want to help. Well, you know what? That's as good a reason as any. Um, it's definitely, there's easier ways to make a living. There's definitely easier ways to help people. But on the other hand, uh, I know that this county is blessed with many judges who have set aside lucrative careers, set aside uh, great businesses, uh, set aside their own privacy, <laughs> In order to serve. And if if that's something that someone wants to do, this is definitely a great way of, 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 of helping our community. All right. That's good. All right. Well, Judge Brent Hill, thank you for your time today. Um, we're here with, again, uh, Judge Brent Hill in the 367th District Court in Denton County. Again, this is Nick Augustine from Texas Law Talk Radio, and I thank you all for your time and hope that when you find our programming in your social media or a newsletter, please do share that with other people and help get the word out about our great programming. And that's about it. So, again, thank you, Judge Brent Hill. Oh, thank you very much, and you all have a great day. All right. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.